3: This
0: episode of the House of Mystery is brought to you by Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Legacyfoodstorage.com Fiction.
1: Science Fiction. Horror. Fantasy. Crime. LGBT. Thriller. You have now entered the House of Mystery, with
2: your hosts, Eric Shapiro, David North Martino,
4: John Copenhagen,
2: and Al Warren. 102.3
1: FM, Los Andes. 102.3 FM Riverside
2: and 1050 AM Palm Springs. Oh, welcome back
5: into the house of mystery. And of course, I'm Al Warren. Mr. Michael Holly is in the room.
4: Hello, Al. This is going to be a great one. Yeah, right down your alley, that's for sure. How well, coincidental that Monday I have a co-lecture Cole with a local authority on Sherlock Holmes. We're doing Sherlock Holmes versus Jack the Ripper lecture, so I'm excited to talk to Les. <laughs> great. Who's Who's that? Oh, we have uh, the local uh, authority. His name is Kevin Gallivan. I have not come across Kevin, but uh, so I'm going to ask Kevin about Les. <laughs> all, all, good. all good.
5: Get the gossip, you know. That's right. Um, yeah. So you're doing, I see you're doing a couple of talks I've noticed I, on, um, cause I've had, to, I've shared them and I, you're doing a couple yes. of things. You know, yeah.
4: And I, uh, yeah, another one, uh, on, again, Francis Tumbley, who, who I do, but, uh, also it's based on a little bit of, uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, which is another reason why I wanted to talk to less. <laughs> Great. Well, Holmes and
3: the Ripper is always a ripe right topic. I, I did a little piece for a magazine that I'm sure you get, Michael, a Ripperologist. Oh yes. I did a little piece uh, a few years ago for them about the Richard Block, uh, Jack the Ripper, Jack El
4: Distripador, uh, which is a great Holmes Ripper crossover. Oh, that's great because Adam Wood, who does that Ripperologist, Al and I had actually interviewed just a little bit ago.
3: It's it's a hardcore community of uh, Scholars i won 't say fans, you can't be fans Jack. No. <laughs> oh we have we,
4: ha- we have definitely lots of groups, but like uh, for me is uh i I love uh, using reparologist because when I do my research, I want people to literally rip into it just to uh, it's kind of like our peer review in a way, so it works that way well i always I always want to plug
3: my dear friend lindsay fay's uh, wonderful book, Dust and Shadow which is uh, the finest of the Holmes meets the Ripper uh, pastiches ever written. Uh, if you haven't read it, it's definitely worth reading. I, she she wrote it when she was in her 20s, and I read it for her in manuscript, and I kept saying to myself, I'm going to catch all these mistakes. And, wow, she had really done her homework, <laughs> and uh, it, it's a terrific uh, book. What's the
4: name of the book again? Dust and Shadow. I've heard of it. I haven't read it, though. Lindsay Fay. Mm. Writing that one down now. Yeah, write it down.
5: So now the 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 third voice you hear is Mr. Leslie S. Klinger, and he's got a new book out called "The New Annotated Strange Case of Doctor Jekyll and Mister Hyde," and uh, welcome to the show, of course. Um, Thank you, Les. So how did how did this all happen to you? Like, how did you get involved with this? And you're doing the annotated versions?
3: Yeah. So when I was in law school, so I'm a lawyer by day. Uh, and uh it, i I keep assuring my wife I'm never gonna give up the day job because uh it's hard to make a living as a writer of the kind of books I do. Um well when I when I was in law school many years ago, um I discovered an amazing book called The Annotated Sherlock Holmes by an author named William S. Gould. It came out in nineteen sixty eight and it was um put out by Clarkson Potter. It was, the one, it was only really sort of the second big annotated book that sort of hit the public market. The first one was uh, the annotated Alice in Wonderland um, by Martin Gardner. And then they published Beringold. And I, I read the Beringold and I was fascinated. I, I had, like many people, I sort of vaguely familiar with Sherlock Holmes. I probably read one or two stories, uh, but I was fascinated not only by the stories but by the depth of amateur scholarship that was on display in these footnotes, not just by Beringold, but by hundreds of nutcases like me, who loved Sherlock Holmes and wanted to do more. So for a long time, I was just a collector, but in the nineties, I decided that I could contribute to the amateur scholarship. And I started writing essays and then eventually, decided that I could re-annotate the stories, that Bering Gould's footnotes, while they were great, were 25, 30 years out of date already at that point. Um, and so I started doing it. I just sort of took it up and I started creating a series of books that later became known as the Sherlock Holmes Reference Library. These were heavily, heavily annotated, footnoted uh, versions of the original stories. Uh, a friend of mine called my writing style law review, and it wasn't a compliment. <laughs> they, they, were, they were talking about sort of if you ever see a law review, you, you see a page with a line of text, and the entire rest of the page is on. And that was my writing. So anyway, I was doing that, and in 2002, I got a call out of the blue from a senior editor at, uh, at Norton who said, we're going to redo that old Baron Gould book and we hear you should edit the new edition. It was like, wow, I'm a lawyer. Uh you know, so I did. Um I was very fortunate to uh, the book, uh, the book won the Edgar uh for best critical biographical. And I thought to myself, gee, I must be God's gift to writers. Why have I been holding back all these years? <laughs> so, um, Anyway, I loved the process and the writing community so much that I said, you know, I can do more. So I dove in, and the next book I did was Dracula, and the next book I did after that was um, uh, loved more and more. There was just it became a stream of these heavily annotated texts, all aimed at sort of the popular market, but nonetheless, because uh, I'm not a scholar, I'm not an academic. Um, but, uh, there seemed to be an audience for this. So at this point, I've done, uh, Sherlock Holmes, which is 3,000 pages, uh, Frankenstein, Dracula, uh, two volumes of H.P. Lovecraft. Um, I did the annotated Sandman, which is, uh, the brilliant uh, series of graphic novels. I did the annotated Watchmen. Um, I did annotated American Gods, uh, classic American crime fiction of the 1920s, and so now, finally, uh, this Jekyll and Hyde. Finally, I don't mean most recently, is a better word. Not finally. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Not your last. Not my last. How do you go about doing it? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a whole process, but it basically involves reading very slowly. Um, It means looking at the text in such depth that you say to yourself what does this word mean what is, what is he talking about here uh what 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 is she trying to get across in this sentence uh really parsing out the it, with a fine tooth comb uh the choice of words the uh, absurdities in the action uh Historical references, cultural references, social references, and then I mean, I always say, look, these are great books. They don't need less clinger to be great books. Um, my idea is to try and enhance the reader's experience, sort of like the director's track on a DVD or something. Not that I'm a director, but I mean to to give the reader a supplement, more, more about the things they're reading, and. Um, it, it's, I, it started out for me, I was one of these people who talked to the screen in the movie theater. That's great. Look at that scene. Oh, this is just like that over there. And it drove my wife crazy. Uh, so I, I channeled those bad urges into more socially acceptable channels.
5: Do you find you have to be kind of careful on how you, how you do that and kind of what? Well, in theaters, yes.
3: I try not to enjoy the radio. Well, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, um, so there is a, there is a selectivity. Um, many of the books that I have annotated are books where somebody else has done it before me, either an academic or in some cases early popular editions. There was a, there was a writer named Leonard Wolfe who did, um, an annotated Dracula. He did an annotated, uh, uh, Frankenstein. Um, and I think he even did annotated Jekyll Hyde many years ago, back in the seventies. And, um, so I, I want to look at what those other writers did, and generally, if they wrote a footnote about it, I probably want to write a footnote about it, too. But not always. I try to be selective. Baron Gould, for example, was fascinated in the Sherlock Holmes stories with the subject known to Sherlockians as chronology, meaning when did the events described in this story actually take place? Um, I do spend some time on that with some of these things, but I try not to be obsessed with it as Baron Gould was. Uh, so for example, Dracula, uh, there's a real question about what, when did that, when did the events in the story take place? It's, it's very specific about dates, but the dates don't quite work on a calendar, um, and uh, so on. So there's there's all kinds of sort of sub-subjects. Uh, language. I mean, when you're doing Victorian books, Michael, uh, as a riperologist, I know you know this, you know, we don't speak Victorian English. Oh, for sure. There are so many phrases and words that meant something different then. Um, and social customs that yeah. were just different then. The- for example... There's a scene in Frankenstein where the, I, I'm sorry, in Dracula, where Lucy leaves her visiting card at somebody's house. What does that mean? You know, we don't do that anymore. It was a thing. You left a calling card at somebody's house
4: saying you'd been there. One of the things I wanted to try to do on my a fiction novel that I wrote uh, called The Ripper's Hellbroth about Jack the Ripper, I was looking for 19th century jokes and 99.9% of them we can't use today because boy, do they rip on the Irish. They rip on everyone. It's just, uh, mm-hmm. so, well, that was inappropriate. Can't do that one. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> well, you,
3: you gotta look hard. I, uh, there's one of my, uh, favorite illustrations that I've forgotten which book I put it in. I may have been Sherlock Holmes. I, I'm trying to remember the relevance, but it shows, uh, um, a, a, an older woman walking on the street she's talking to her girlfriend and she's all covered with bandages and bruises and a black eye and one of them says uh, oh uh Joe's home from work again uh and it, you know it's about violence against women domestic abuse but it was and and of course the prevalence of alcohol and and uh, drunkenness and in, in lower class society in England you know they they poked fun at themselves. They made fun of it. Uh, it's not so funny anymore. But.
2: Right,
4: right. And then even uh, with the uh, the unfortunates, you know, it, they used to say, uh, "You want to do the business." Although then, when you watch some movies, I, I just watched uh, one uh, Sherlock Holmes versus Jack Ripper on TV called uh, something Terror. That A study in terror. My favorite
3: Sherlock Holmes movie.
4: Oh, okay. And then uh, I just I just re- remember when one of the the unfortunates said something else. I said, oh, I, that's not what they mean. <laughs> so, I,
3: right. Well, it's a, it's a, it's partly about prostitution. So, uh, um, yeah, there's, uh, there's, that's such a great book. John Neville plays Holmes. Oh, Donald yes. plays Watson. Uh, it's got the one, wonderful Anthony Quayle in it. And best of all, it has Robert Morley playing the part of Mycroft Holmes, Sherlock's older brother. Oh, yeah. Um, who is the spitting image of Mycroft from the Sydney Paget illustration. <laughs> so, and there's also, by the way, a very good book. It was, it was novelized by Hillary Queen. Um,
4: so watch for it. Study in terror. Study in terror. I'll look for that too, but I, it was so funny. I just watched that and then uh, we'll get the interview less and then I get to talk to more, more about Sherlock Holmes and stuff. So it's <laughs> interesting. What do you think the, um, well, actually, before I get into that, uh,
5: do you learn something each time you do one of these books?
3: Oh, absolutely, absolutely. I I um, have started some some of the books. I mean, Sherlock Holmes and Dracula, I had spent a lot of time with before I began annotating them. Uh, the other books I had read once, and so when you go back to them and and annotate, I mean, one of the one of the warnings, one of the bits of advice I give to writers who think they're going to write a, a book kind of that doesn't have to be annotated, but a book about another book is you better really like that book <laughs> because you're going to spend a lot of time with it. Um, and the the pleasure, the joy of doing something like Shackle and Hyde is how brilliant it is. Uh, and this is a book that um, we'll, we'll talk about. In, in a few minutes, I'm sure we'll talk about movies of the, of the book and all that. But this is a book that's been adapted many, many times. And it, and like Frankenstein or Dracula, therefore, it's one of these stories that everybody thinks they know um, until they read the book. And then they say, oh, this is considerably different. Um, so one of the great pleasures of of doing Jekyll and Hyde was reminding myself, I'd like to think, of the incredibly meticulous craftsmanship that Stevenson used in, in creating this story, it's got a shocking ending. Uh, this is a story that was described by one critic as uh, a, a mystery in which the solution is more shocking than the crime. Um, and when you read it, no knowing when you know the ending, when you sort of know the surprise, and you go back and read it again. One of the things that I saw and learned was just how beautifully crafted it is with its buildup of clues, uh, hints, and and suspense in getting toward that ending. Um, that It's all there, but but as you're reading it for the first time, it's this great mystery.
5: It, it's kind of strange. What do you think the fascination is with some of these stories that stay around years and years and they keep coming back and keep coming back? What is it the... Is it the detail in the writing?
3: Is it, uh, what is it that? I think know. it's, I think it's a combination of things, of course. Uh, part, part of it, I mean, there is a certain amount, element of nostalgia for the Victorian age, uh, uh, or, or sort of invented nostalgia because none of us really remember Victoriana, but, um, we have this vague idea that it was a golden age. And so, Reading these, I mean, Michael, certainly you, you know better. Um, if you studied the Ripper at all, you really studied the incredibly ugly side of life in the big city. Oh yeah. Um, sure. uh, you know, alcohol and abuse and, uh, and crime. Tale
4: of Two Cities with London.
3: Yeah. So nostalgia is a small part of it. I think in each of these, It's the plasticity, if, if you will. It's the, it's the iconic nature of the central characters or the stories. Um, so we can talk for hours about Sherlock Holmes and why people admire or want to be Sherlock Holmes or want to be like Sherlock Holmes. That's a whole, that's a whole deep discussion, but jumping to the others, I mean, um, we're fascinated by a figure like Dracula or a figure like the creature in Frankenstein. Um, outside of society and yet very much part of society and therefore giving the writer the ability to comment on society. But there's also a certain immortality to these characters that the things that they're about are timeless. Jekyll and Hyde is a timeless story about um, hypocrisy, about, what what stevenson called the war that old war of the members um that is to say the dueling nature of human beings that we have we all have our Jekylls and our hides inside us and struggle to reconcile it's it's not a story that is in any way locked into victorian england you can move it just like you can with Holmes and Dracula and Frankenstein and all those. You can pick it up and move it to any time, and it works. And and that timelessness, that depth, I think, is what makes these books. It, it's it's why they endure, because they are so plastic and can be molded to fit any time or place.
4: The uh, Mansfield's Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde uh, the performed – Right at the beginning of the, the Ripper murders. As a matter of fact, the first day it performed, it was, uh, August 4th. August 5th, it made the papers and August 6th is when the, arguably the first Ripper murder occurred. Yes. And then, uh, no one knows this, what I just found out. Uh, it's going to be part of my next, uh, book is that, that the very first time, uh, at the Lyceum Theater when they canceled the show, 4 hours later was the double event murder where two women were cur- were murdered. So uh but then they kind of continued the show afterward but but the public thought it was done. So here is if if Jack the Ripper was this person looking for this elixir uh that uh, that would have been inspiration and then next thing you know he would have been quite upset that uh the show was canceled.
3: Right, he was a he was a pissed off theater goer. <laughs> exactly. His Ticket was canceled. So no, it's it's remarkable coincidences here, and of course th- that era is also Dracula's time. Oh yeah, uh, Bram Stoker was very much an overlap of the exact time periods. Um, we could go Dracula and the Ripper is a whole other deep subject. So uh,
4: that's but that's what the Ripper's haunt is actually about because uh, Bram Stoker was uh, at the Lyme, Lyceum Theater when he was a uh, business manager, and it's. His best pal was Henry Hall Kane, who was the boyfriend of the guy I researched Tumblebee, <laughs> so it's a lot it definitely
3: yes, well, they all knew each other. It was a small circle of literary friends and colleagues I mean Conan Doyle knew Stoker um and uh, uh, they just were you know it was a it was a small group of people. Stevenson knew them all too Wow uh, so this is a time I mean. There's no question in my mind that Stevenson very much wanted to explore the hypocrisy of the era as well. But this is a time when, uh, you know, we sort of put ourselves back into Victorian times when there was a great deal of stress on propriety, um, uh, outwardly proper living. At the same time, there was a great deal of private sinning going on, uh, this was the time of the great scandals of child prostitution rings. Oh yes, uh, of course, homosexuality was a crime. Gross yes, indecency, yes, right. And there were there were prosecutions. This is Oscar Wilde time, uh, and so it's interesting that people think of t- Mr. Hyde as this. Uh, evil vicious creature we're not sure what sins he's committing other than the murder I mean we definitely know he commits a murder but what else is he doing and what is it that dr. Jekyll is covering up what is it that he is deeply repenting um, from his past was it homosexuality was it hanging out with prostitutes this is an unusual book, and there's it, it's it's deliberately ambiguous, but of course, as you've pointed out, Michael, the public reacted to it immediately, and there were sermons all over the place about uh, uh, this book and
4: uh, and the the wages of sin question then uh, with both that and Dracula's, uh, there's been people that are believe there's codes in there um, would you uh, how, how, how's your take on that? You, you mean secret messages? Kind of, like what what they're talking about maybe possibly is a actual person, actual events that are happening, kind of. Ah,
3: yeah, well, I haven't seen any. I mean, certainly there were historical figures that inspired Stevenson. Um, one of them is a, is a man named Deacon Brody. Um, this was a figure about whom Stevenson and his friend William Henley actually wrote a play. Uh, deacon Brody was a um, a man who led a very respectable life by day he was a deacon of the church uh and by night was the leader of a gang of thieves oh. uh and eventually caught and exposed and that dual life that that um hypocrisy fascinated Stevenson uh and i think Stevenson also felt that he himself was a hypocrite uh, he had been expected by his family to become uh, an architect um, and to lead a sort of suitably professional class life in in London. But he really wanted to be an artist. And of course, he ended up bailing on uh, England altogether and moving to the South Pacific. Um, but uh, so he, it was it was partly about himself. Um, but. I, I don't know that he had a very specific pe- person in mind. Unlike Frankenstein, where we can point to sort of scientists of the day who were interested in um, the creation of life, I'm not aware of any sp- specific science that was undertaken here that had to do with the kind of things that Jekyll and Hyde is about. There there was interest in split personalities. There was already some uh, case um Reports of people with, uh, split personalities of I mean, the psychological problems, not just the Deacon Brody who was getting away with two laws.
5: That's pretty fascinating because you kind of, there's so much, um, I guess kind of hidden meaning to the book. Are there so many different ways to look at it? You must really have to think about this and.
3: Well, you think about it and you read a lot. I mean, I, as I said, I, I started this out sort of um, saying, yeah, that's really a good book. I'll bet I can do something interesting with it. And then dove into the scholarship, the research, the work that others have done. I, I don't think of myself as a particularly creative person um, when I do these books. I, I think of myself as someone who can appreciate other people's work. And try and sort of put it on display and uh, reference a lot. Um, so, for example, when I did uh, the stories of H. P. Lovecraft, I did two volumes of Lovecraft. Um, there's a huge amount of scholarship that I read through and tried to pull into um, references in in the work to to show what other people had done and what what they had thought about many, many issues.
5: And you must really have to, like, when you're doing, like, this book, Jekyll and Hyde here, um, you must really have to find out about Stevenson,
3: like, um
5: so much that was going on during the time he wrote it.
3: Like, you know. Yes. Yeah. Well, so, again, this is the Victorian period, so it's one that – um I felt pretty comfortable with. I have a depth of research material in the form of, oh, I have an 1888 Britannica, I have a 1910 Britannica, I have a whole slew of Baydeckers from the time period, travel guides. I have slang dictionaries, I have uh, almanacs and medical texts and so on. So I love using those Victorian resources. Plus the Internet has a tremendous amount of Victorian material available. Uh, in the form of magazines, uh, journals that were being published at the time, and, and this books. This episode long out of, of print. The
0: House of Mystery is brought to you by Legacy Food Storage. The best way to protect your family is by being prepared. Legacyfoodstorage.com.
4: Look, we know that boy's going to ask again, so let's be ready. Fine, I'll be him. You ready? Ready. Mom, could you hook me up with a GoPhone? You'll run up the bill, son. Yo, that's whack, moms. GoPhone
1: is totally different.
4: What? It'll only cost me an arm? Chillax. It has unlimited talk and text. Seriously? Word. Okay, we'll get a GoPhone. Really? Uh, Really? That is the bomb. Do you even know what the bomb means? Yes.
2: No. Hey! GoPhone, only from AT&T. With unlimited talk to 65 million wireless AT&T customers and now unlimited text to anyone on any network. AT&T, your world delivered.
0: Me, 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 but also you. The Pharaoh fast-forwards his favorite foreign film, powder Donut. <clears throat> okay, what's my
1: line? Uh, the only line I see here on the script is get options based on your budget with the name and price tool from Progressive.
0: Oh, man. That's a tongue twister, huh? I'm sorry. I'm going to need a few more minutes. Bulbous. Walrus. The Bulbous Walrus.
1: The name your price tool. Only from Progressive.
2: The owl ran afoul of the comatose cockswain.
1: Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Computer, execute 12.4p operation.
2: Optimizing algorithm. Running
4: encryption packet alpha night night. Oh, I don't feel so good.
2: What? What is it, computer?
4: Is it hot in here? It feels hot in here? I feel a little clammy. I should lie down or something
3: A computer with a virus? Surprising. What's not surprising? How much you could save by switching to GEICO.
4: Those oysters Rockefeller were a mistake.
3: GEICO. 15 minutes could save you 15% or more.
0: With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere.
2: Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to- Has anyone seen the bride and groom?
0: Sorry, sorry,
1: we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time.
0: (gasps) is necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Welcome aboard Pizza Hut, where our legendary pan and stuffed
0: crust pizzas will fly you to a world of flavors. Taste an all-American pizza sauce, juicy pepperoni, and farm fresh mozzarella to discover America's mega pepperoni. Or explore the creamy pesto sauce. Chicken and mushroom is in the French creamy chicken mushroom. Fly far above the rest and taste a variety with five new pizzas. And thank you for flying Pizza Hut morning, face. You get it when you don't sleep well. This is what happened to Linda.
1: Morning, guys.
5: Good morning. Ah, what is Hi. that thing?
1: It's me, Linda.
5: Oh my
2: god, it talks! Right! No,
1: it's me, Linda, from HR. It looks
2: hungry! Save the children! Save them! Stay back, I've got mace! Ow, they're one of my eyes! We're moving! It's called beauty sleep for a reason. And there's never been a better time to get some. Get 20% off Ikea Sultan mattresses. Ikea, love your home. Now back to the show. So what, what do you think
5: about the movie adaptations of these sort of things or the way that it goes to screen? I know I was recently listening to Frankenstein uh, on audiobook, and that was the first time for me, and I was surprised at how much more there was to the book. I almost thought when I was listening, I, maybe I was listening to the wrong book. It's, it's so different from what I grew up with. And it's like, wow, that's crazy. I mean, that must be work in
3: itself to take something like this and turn it into a movie. Right. Well, so this happened. Uh, Frankenstein is a perfect example of, of this, and it, it happened again with with the Jekyll Hyde, which is that the book so caught the public attention that it was immediately and illegally, uh, because copyright laws were pretty loose, um, put on the stage. And because it was the stage, it had to be, and we'll get to film in a minute, but film had the same issues. Uh, it had to be considerably simplified and, if you will, sort of focused, sharpened, to be sort of one note Uh and in most cases, there had to be a romantic element introduced because that would be more appealing to an audience. So all of the adaptations of, of Jekyll and Hyde are distortions of the original story uh, because it's just sort of the nature of uh, we'll say we'll say that's Hollywood. You know, that's what happens when you make stage plays or movies out of a out of a book where you can indulge in a lot of subtlety. Um, so all of the stage plays have romantic interests, um, whereas the book uh, has essentially no women in it. There is one minor, minor woman character uh, in the story, but everybody else, everybody of any importance is a man. Um, and that doesn't play well on the screen. Um, you know, Hollywood wouldn't buy that version. Uh, so, um, it, it got changed. And similarly, Dr. Jekyll becomes much more heroic, much more the victim, um, than the book would credit him with. Similarly to Dr. Frankenstein. Um, in, in when you read Frankenstein, I'm sure, you came to the conclusion that the real villain of that story is not the creature. It's Victor Frankenstein, who is a really awful father. Um, And that is not the message of the stage plays, uh, which focus on, oh, he went too far as a scientist. He explored things. The title of the first stage play of Frankenstein was called presumption, which says it all. It's a, you know, sort of be careful what you research. And similarly, Jekyll and Hyde got into much the same sort of vein. It was, uh, you know, oh, poor Dr. Jekyll. He he investigated things that he shouldn't have, and he let loose a monster. Well, that's not the theme of the book at all. The theme of the book is this is the real Hyde. This is real parts of Dr. Jekyll. As as G.K. Chesterton said, the great revelation of the book is not that Jekyll is two people. It's that Jekyll and Hyde are one person. Um, and uh, so Jekyll becomes all good in the stage and screen versions as opposed to being a normal human being with a lot of good parts and a lot of bad parts uh, as he's depicted in the book. book. Do you
5: think there was a political motivation to it um, relating to the times?
3: Sure, sure. Um, it was uh, uh, also about the hypocrisy of the politi- of the politicians and the, and the people running the government, um, espousing great ideals and living lives that were secretly uh, sinful. Thank God they, that's changed. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Well, I'll tell you, it has changed. It has changed considerably. Now everybody says, yeah, I'm an awful person. Isn't that great?
4: <laughs> yeah.
3: Well, there you go.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
5: no, it's funny. I it's just, um, do you think the writing was better back then?
2: Then?
3: No, but I think there was, I don't think it was better. I think there's some wonderful writers now, but, but the, um, I, I guess I would say that there was more attention paid to writing because, you know, it, we have to keep reminding ourselves this is before radio, before television, before movies. So, the only entertainment venue out there was basically books or books or the stage, um, which is like books in that it sort of was all about the script. Um, and so there was more interest in writing. This was a golden age for uh, for writers and readers uh, as be, because of t- several developments, because of number one, the board schools. Uh, More and more education for the poor and the middle classes, um, and and a lot of spread of reading. I mean, reading in the in the nineteenth in the eighteenth century, remember, was a pastime of the aristocratic classes. Uh, They're the only ones that knew how to read. Nobody else could read. So books were a luxury. um, But when we get to the nineteenth century, we have the white we have the diverse the 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 spread of education, and we have more leisure time because of the railroads. We have people spending a lot of time twiddling their thumbs while they're on the train riding to or from the city or their other place of employment, and so they bought magazines and newspapers and read and read and read. So it was a golden age for writers and readers, I think.
5: When someone was going to read and and even read a paper, they, you know, from my understanding, they would read page to page in every single article. Like it was very, like people devoured if they really got into it. Yes. Like it's not like someone today sitting on the train and flipping through the New York Times. It was, it was, yeah,
3: that's right. It, it was their entertainment. You know, they didn't have, they couldn't text people. They didn't have things to watch on their phones. They didn't have movies or radio or television. So they read and they wanted to be entertained. I mean, we've forgotten, I think, that many of the great novels of the 19th century were published serially in newspapers. Um, and so, uh, people's attention had to be grabbed so they'd buy the next issue. Would you
5: want to live back in those times?
3: Oh, no. I think that, no. <laughs> you know, on, on the one hand, the Victorian age is fascinating to me because every I like to say every revolution of the 20th century really was born then. Whether we're talking about the rights of women, uh, people of color, uh, the Industrial Revolution, the Communications Revolution, computers, you know, the explosion of science, all of that started in the 19th century. But we've also forgotten that London was a town filled with smoke
4: and haze and horse manure. One of the things I talk about there is that because of the prevailing westerly winds, the uh, wealthy were on the west end where they would get the winds from the countryside to fresh air, and the east end, which was older, they got all that stuff you were just talking about.
3: It was an odiferous time in London. Uh, (laughs) And uh, uh, not, you know... We take all our modern conveniences uh, for granted, uh, whether it's uh, the water closet or the uh, uh, the running hot and cold water and all that. And, uh, you know, the, the gas range, uh, electric lights. There were a lot of sort of hardships, or at least what we would regard today as hardships, of living in that time. Um, it, and And it was not a good time to be a woman or a person of color. It was not a good time to be poor. Um, and, uh, it, it was, life was a struggle. On the other hand, every middle-class household had a maid, um, because you just had to, and they were plentiful, all those young Irish girls.
5: Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest things people miss out on that time when they talk about. You know, uh, how good the times were back then, but they're not actually thinking about the person's day to day life, what, what they actually had to do just
3: to get through the day, right. you know. Well, just, you know, just right? dressing alone. My goodness. The amount of clothing that especially women had to wear, uh, and the efforts that they went to and the rigid constraints on things like mourning, uh, and and dating and employment, uh, it was it was a restrictive time. It was also not a great time to be living in one of the colonies of the empire. Although people like to think of that as a golden age too, not if you were living in India or Ireland or uh, any of the other many colonies. Uh, the United States was no longer a colony, but uh, it was a time when uh, it was great if you were one of the rulers. But not so great if you were one of the
4: colonials. Including disease. That was yes. a way to, uh, situation. Yes.
5: Well, grooming's got to have been really difficult, too, back then.
4: That's right. Uh,
3: it, you know, it, it, shaving a haircut was uh, a lot more effort, let's put it that way.
5: Yeah, it wasn't something. It wasn't like you couldn't daily groom like we do now. You know, what? A, what a different time. Um, what do you hope people get out of this? Like when you do something like this at the, at the end of it, like when someone picks this up and, and looks at it, and I see there's going to be over a hundred color images. Oh,
3: absolutely. And the, the images are great. I, I hope they walk away saying, um, gee, I didn't realize what a great book this really was. And not because Les Klinger is trumpeting it. That's not, it's not, that's not what I mean. What I mean is I think they will, I hope they will walk away having discovered aspects of the story that they had no idea were there and walk away uh, applauding Robert Louis Stevenson and the work of genius that he created um, that otherwise they may not may not have paid attention to.
5: I wonder what it was that particularly made certain one of these, like, was this Stevenson's
3: only book? Oh, not at all. Uh, no. He was already known as a writer of works like Treasure Island, Kidnapped and um, many other sort of adventure stories. Uh, He became, later scholars thought of him as just a children's author, but um, later scholars went back and read his other stuff and said, well, he had a lot of adult material that was pretty darn good. Um, No, this was not his first book or nor his best known book And, and, and in fact, it was just sort of tossed off. He only took six weeks to write it. And, um, I'm not sure it's his prime. I think probably he's best remembered for Treasure Island these days rather than Jekyll and Hyde. But, um, but, and while Treasure Island is a great book and one that fascinates me, it's not one that I wanted to particularly spend a lot of time
4: with. I just, I'm still so intrigued by. 1886, when that came out, and then two years later, the the Whitechapel murders occurred, and there was so much connection to that because, especially when they were thinking that Jack the Ripper was a Jekyll Hyde type person, where during yeah. the day he was a prominent prominent physician, at night he was a medical maniac, maybe right. looking for the elixir of life, and then uh, so I mean, it's just like they fed off each other, and I'm wondering maybe even. Uh, Jack the Ripper exploited that. <laughs> so
3: Who knows? A, a copycat, maybe. Um, although we, we don't know much about the murder that takes place with Jack the Ripper, just that he murdered this guy. And it's, it's such a weird story uh, that uh, Sir Danvers was out posting a letter at one in the morning, uh, and uh, and he meets Hyde, and Hyde kills him in a fit of something, rage, who knows but uh, yeah the the murder is so sort of inexplicable you you get the feeling that it's really secret code for something else, that it was a, a homosexual assignation that went wrong or something like that and and of course, i I think the, there were a lot of those. I think there was a lot of that sort of thing actually happening um, and so I think the idea of that sort of late night violence was not. Strange to the reading public. Um,
4: and so was the Ripper a copycat? I don't know. Could be. Well, interestingly, that, uh, that Martha Tabram, who was murdered on August 6th, that was the one year anniversary of the execution of Henry Franzini, who was a Paris Ripper that killed, cut the throat of three women. That, uh, and so that was the one year anniversary of that. So of his execution. So, uh, and it definitely, Jack the Ripper could be a Pranzini copycat, too. <laughs> so, and here it is. Uh, at that time, right there, especially if you have Bram Stoker's Dracula, what, uh, what a kind of a mix. Absolutely. It's Dracula,
3: I, I believe Dracula took place in 1888. Um, I'm, I'm not wholly alone in that view, but it's not the popular view. Most people, subscribe to the view it was eighteen ninety three, but I believe it was eighteen eighty eight, smack in the middle of Ripper time. Uh when you look at a map of where Dracula Dracula had eleven spots around London where he kept boxes of soil. Uh if you map those out, it's exactly where the Ripper murders took place.
4: So, is it true, then, that Bram Stoker dedicated the book to Henry Hall Kane, who, in fact, was a boyfriend, one of the top Ripper suspects? (laughs) It is true. Uh, They were
3: friends, um, and, uh, yeah, so uh,
4: they they were longtime friends. I don't know that he knew about the Ripper connection, but... uh, Well, I, I do know that Bram Stoker, at the Lyceum Theater, the Order of the Golden Dawn was started in 1888, and one of their goals was to look for the philosopher's stone or the elixir of life, and uh and how coincidental that you know these vampires are immortal, and, and so it's so intriguing. I, that, it uh, it's just fun. I mean, you know how many conspiracies I know. The, wonderful stew. <laughs> so the writer who
3: has mixed this stew best is my friend Kim Newman. Um, if you haven't read his Anno Dracula series, uh, it's brilliant. Um, And it, it, and it has the Ripper very much in it. Uh, Anno Dracula. Anno Dracula. And there's actually four or five novels in the series now, but the first of them is called Anno Dracula, one of the finest vampire novels ever written. And uh, Dr. Seward plays a material part in it. And I won't, I don't want to give anything away, but let me just say the Ripper is very much involved in the story. So it's about, he basically imagines that um the hunters the crew of light of dracula failed dracula survived he's come to he's in england he actually ends up marrying queen victoria uh and becoming the uh I mean, he is nobility remember he is a count so he ends up uh being sort of the ruler of england through victoria who becomes essentially his sort of slave and it's it's a terrific book, um very popular and Kim Newman, so
5: that's yeah. a heck
4: of a royal conspiracy yes. then
5: yeah, <laughs> yeah, Neil's story has quite a bit to say about that too have we've talked to him a few times about uh um, you know this whole combination of people
3: and stuff I, I it's just it's just really bizarre and the Sikh you know it the it's sort of Things get, things get weird. Remember how we all thought was, what we thought was going to happen in the end times of 1999? It was all happening in 1899 and, and the decade <laughs> before that.
5: Uh, so were you, were, what, what's up for you next? Are you, are you going to, you must do like one every couple of years or something, you, you know, mistake.
3: Yes. I, I haven't agreed with the publisher on the next title yet. We've been kicking around some ideas. Probably it'll be The Invisible Man. But meanwhile, I am uh, continuing to be busy with the Library of Congress Crime Classics series. We put out one of those essentially every three months. Those are lightly annotated um, editions of American Crime Classics. Um, uh, I just finished doing my annotations for uh, S.S. Van Dyne's The Canary Murder Case, uh, which is 1930. Nineteen twenty nine, um, uh, Philo Vance, the great detective Philo Vance. Uh, we've done earlier stuff um, and we've done later stuff, so it's a real mix, and it's a lot of fun to do those sort of in between the big books. Yeah, yeah, it must be.
5: Uh... So, uh, how do you like people to find you? Are are you doing a website, social media? Yes, there's
3: a, there's a, all of the above. There's a website, uh, lesliesklinger.com. dot com. Uh, which shows all my books, and you can order them there if you if you are so moved. Um, I'm on Twitter uh, under the clever title of L. Clinger. Um and uh, yeah, please uh, look for me on social media and reach out. And uh, I love, as you can tell, I love talking about these things.
5: Well, we'll have that on our website as well, so people can find you with one click. In that, how was the pandemic for for this type of
3: research and work for you? Uh, you know, first of all, lawyers generally, I think, were super busy during the pandemic. I mean, uh, it it was, it was not a problem to, um, not come in the office. I was able to get a tremendous amount of work done at home. So, um, it didn't really affect my writing at all. Uh, It only affected my ability to go to conventions and see my friends, but, um, I, I was able to devote a lot of time to writing. Um, because, but the same same as before, yeah, do
5: you think that you know um something like the pandemic that happens and the people that live through it and the writers that live through it, do you think it'll influence how they write in and so Absolutely. and, and Absolutely. in that same same kind of line um uh, when these books were being written, like Jekyll and Hyde and Frankenstein and Dracula and stuff how much of of that? times issues would have would have affected what they wrote do you think it kind of seeps in somehow
3: absolutely and i think part of it's intentional um i mean one of the great things about crime writing i've always said is that by the very nature of the subject matter it allows us to explore the dark side of modern of contemporary life Um, and I, I think the same was true of the kind of genre fiction that was being written in the 19th century, whether it was about monsters um, or crimes um, or the, even the supernatural. It allowed those writers to write about their own societies and criticize them without it being a social, you know, without it being a, a uh, simply a, a, a social critique. I mean, nobody wanted to just write an essay about what's wrong with modern London. You know, They could do it better by telling a story that showed what was wrong with modern London. Um, So I think that's always been true for writers, that telling stories is a way to talk about the world out there. Um, And it's never been about just pure entertainment for the great writers. Right.
5: There's always a subtext. There's always something that they
3: want people to pick up. That's right. And it's, and it, whether it's intentional or not, I mean, when you write a story about, uh, you know, Tess of the D'Urberville, um, you are writing about a social problem, um, you know, something that is really bothering you because that's what makes an interesting story. It, it's not much of a story to write about, uh, Les Klinger and his life, uh, practicing law. You know, people see, say to me, why don't you write something about that? Well, because it's a, I won't say it's a boring life. It's just not a life that has a story that anybody else would want to read. You don't have a Mr. Hyde side. That... <laughs> oh, oh yeah. Tell you <laughs>
5: yeah, right. well, you see, this is what we got to get on paper.
3: Right. The Mr. Hyde side for me is my
5: writing life. Yeah, yes. Oh, well, there you go. <laughs> right. Well, what, do you, what did you find out about Robert Louis Stevenson that you didn't know? Or was there any surprises?
3: Um. Yeah, I didn't really understand that he was this, as I said earlier, that he was also a a conflicted person who basically struggled with reconciling the expectations of his family um, with his own personal interests of 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 being an artist. Um, I I didn't really know that about him at all. Um, And uh, so that was a revelation. And it's and it's all there in the stories. Once you once you know that. You start to see that 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 was part of his subtext, if you will. Yeah, yeah,
5: it's pretty amazing what you can pick up about people, about writers,
3: if you. It's really like Lovecraft. Uh, I, uh, one of my editors said to me, "Wow, when I read your introduction about Lovecraft, Lovecraft, you know, has written these stories that are so weird, and when you find out that his biography is that both of his parents died." in the insane asylum. oh boy It becomes like yeah wow that <laughs> explains a lot
5: well this has been a great show I, I find you very interesting and and of course uh the new book um is the new annotated strange case of dr jekyll and mr hyde and of course our guest is the author of that leslie s clinger thank you for being on the show
3: my pleasure, Alan. It's great speaking with you, Les. Same here, Michael. Good luck with your uh, Ripper talk here. So.
4: You've been listening to the House of Mystery radio show. To find out more about our guests, hosts, or shows, go to
2: www.houseofmystery.com.
1: Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Yeah.
2: Good night. This is a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back. Psst. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Do you know where you are? Well, you've done it now. You're listening to KCAA Loma Linda, your CNBC news station. So expect the unexpected.
0: How you doing? This is Gary Garver. In today's society, the majority of people are not getting enough sleep. I know I'm not. If you're like me and having problems getting a good night's rest, whether it's health or stress-related, I have a solution for you, South Pacific Sleep Lab. South Pacific Sleep Lab will do an evaluation of your sleep pattern and will provide a comprehensive study so you can start getting a restful, peaceful night of sleep. They take all types of insurance, which will cover your cost of the evaluation and they will even provide transportation to their offices at no cost to you. For more information, contact Tony at 310-999-1887. That's 310-999-1887. Tony even stays awake all night, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week, so you can sleep better and rest easy. South Pacific Sleep Lab. Start feeling better and getting a great night of sleep today.
2: 10.50 a.m. Don't forget that number. And for you young people who got here by accidentally fat-fingering your FM band selector, we're an AM radio station, and AM refers to more than just the time of day.
3: I'm Rick Smith, host of The Rick Smith Show, inviting you to listen to my show during the noon hour every weekday right here on KCAA. My show is sponsored locally by Teamsters 1932 a strong union with 14,000 members in the IE. Our message is clear. Unions improve the lives of working people. You have a right to form and join a union. So go to Teamsters1932.org and get started now.
1: The complete website is TehuboTeacClub.com or call us at 818-610-8088, Monday through Saturday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. California time. That's 818-610-8088, TehuboTeacClub.com.
2: For several years, KCAA has been marketing the Younggevity brand of nutritional and personal care products. Our experience with younggevity has been 100% positive, so we are pleased to recommend them to you. Regarding nutritional supplements, we recommend Pollen Burst in the berry flavor and Tangy Tangerine 2.0 in the tablet form. For regularity issues, we recommend 3-Day Cleanse. And for personal care, we recommend Morning Hydration Cream. You can shop online for Longevity at www.kcaateam.com or you can order by phone by calling 800-982-3197 and tell customer support that you are part of the KCAA team. Youngevity is an American company based in San Diego. Call Younggevity at 800-982-3197 and ask about monthly auto ship that allows you to buy Yongevity products at wholesale prices. That number again, 800-982-3197. You're on board KCAA's Inland Talk Express. KCAA, Loma Linda, 1050 AM, the station that leaves no listener behind.
4: If you find yourself in need of legal representation, it can be a very stressful time in your life. In my career, I have dealt with